You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, my guest is Dr. Gina Loudon. She is a good friend of mine. We met first in L.A. in 2011 at the Talkers Radio Conference, and I have been so excited to watch the impact that she has had in politics, and she has a beautiful family. I loved seeing her in Palm Beach a couple weeks ago when I was down there. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gina. She's a member of the Trump 2020 Campaign Media Advisory Board. She's a popular guest analyst on Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, HLN, and she's co-host of America Talks Live on Newsmax TV. She holds two master's degrees as well as a PhD in psychology, and she and her husband are the parents of five children. Dr. Gina, thank you so much for joining us today on Right in DC. It's good to be with you. And just one thing I can note is that uh, because the left has so attacked me since my book, when I had the unmitigated gall to say that the president might actually be sane. Um, and so they've been parsing details as they love to do. My two master's degrees and my PhD are all in behavioral slash psychological fields, but they're all in different fields. They're not all in specifically psychology. So I always like to clarify that uh, just because they like to attack me on it. <laughs> I find that to be so absurd. And I am glad that you made that clarification. It's always good that conservatives make sure that they are um, as out there and, and avoid the uh, attacks and the calumny of the left as much as they can. But I can't help but think of Dr. Blasey Ford, who um, was you know, testifying in the, the Judge Kavanaugh hearings before the Senate. And uh, there was certainly discussion about whether she was a clinical psychologist and what she had put on her uh, college website as ad identification. And for some reason, the left seems to always inflate the credentials of people who are like-minded and agree with them and yes. somehow likes to attack those who have excellent, superb credentials because those people don't agree with them. That seems to be a trend. It is a trend. And, you know, it, what they force you to do in my particular case, because all of my degrees are in different things, you know, one is something called human and organizational development. So I'm going to say that with two other degrees that have just as long and ridiculous sounding. And by the way, I think pretentious <laughs> sounding uh, descriptions. And that's really what they forced me into, which is just sort of sort of funny. But, uh, you know, the, the left doesn't do a lot that makes a lot of sense to those of us who are just sensible and uh, reasonably minded. And so that's why we're conservatives and they're not. Right. And I suspect most of, most of those people <laughs> criticizing you uh, don't have PhDs in anything. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Or if they do, they made a decision to maybe sit behind a desk their whole entire life, which a lot of people do. I have no problem with it but maybe they're not so happy about the decision they made. Right. So like, you don't sit behind the desk and listen to people's problems 24 hours a day. I'm like, no, there are many different kinds of ways to study human behavior. You can do it by research. You can do it certainly in politics is a, is a rich, rich world to study, right? And I, but I guess it's not good enough for them, so. Well, you have, I, I'm, I had many things that I wanna ask you about, but you, that's such an interesting point that you raise. When we have these national discussions about neurologic, neuralgic topics such as uh, the, the foreign policy, the presidential character, presidential leadership, uh, discussions about how to make schools better, it seems like there are economists who are on television and on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal and other places talking about the economic effects of different policies. You have uh, politicians who are out there talking about it, uh, probably to try and persuade people so that they can get their policies passed or implemented in some way. Uh, but we don't see so much of the psychological discussion of these very important national debates. And you wrote this book called Mad Politics, Keeping Your Sanity in a World Gone Crazy. And I think a lot of people on the right and left can agree that it seems like the world has gone crazy. How are you able to bring your psychological training and background, uh, even if it's called a different thing, but for lay people like me, uh, it, is, it is definitely a psychological understanding of these national debate topics. How do you bring that in and how do you think that it should be brought more into this conversation? 
Well, I really think that the behavioral aspects of everything that goes on politically is the only thing that makes it understandable, predictable, preventable, and duplicable. And so I, I think that we, it's something that we really have to consider. If you don't consider the human behavior behind the actions, then you're just looking at, at basically rote activity and it's not going to make any sense. There's no way to clarify it. There's no way to cluster it together. There's no way to look at pattern. And so I've always believed that, you know, they, that you're exactly right. These news programs that want to always talk about the what, but never want to discuss the why. I've always felt like they're missing something that is really, really critical to the person who's out there trying to watch this and make sense of it. We all understand story. It's very difficult to understand linear facts that just this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. We want to know the story behind what happened because we want to know, hey, if this was a good thing in our body politic, how can we duplicate it, right? And if it was a horrible thing, such as, for example, you know, Nazi Germany or something, we want to make sure that never happens again. But you can't deduce it to knowable, preventable uh, um, equations unless you consider the human behavior element. So I'm always trying to bring that element in and to get the news media to talk about it. But you're right, it's an uphill battle. They'll bring in economists, they'll bring in medical doctors, but they don't want to talk about the human behavior behind the story. And that reminds me, in your book, you reference Professor Jonathan Haidt, who has written a lot of interesting books on the I, essentially the psychology of politics and conservatives versus liberals. And it's been a while since I read his book, but I remember he made a point essentially saying that liberals are really engaged on the emotional level on these national political debates and conservatives tend to be less engaged on the emotional level, but he says that's how people really understand things. Just that point you were making about whether people understand stories or they relate better to linear facts presented in a way that's more clinical. Um, and you talked about how, you know, he kind of impacted your views of the free market and understanding conservative principles. Yeah, I love I love Dr. Haidt's work, and I've spoken with him several times on the phone. We even once upon a time talked about doing some work together on something. Um, but you know, he's another one of those who has taken such endless ridicule for his honest opinion. Yes, um, that uh, that I think he's kind of shied away from some of his work. Sadly, um, I mean, I can't know his motivation, but that's just you know that's sort of my take on what's happened. I don't think he's as engaged as he was once upon a time in writing about these matters. And that and that's the, the truth for a lot of um, people. I know a tenured professor at UCLA who um, his tenure was actually removed for him pointing out that the carbon emissions along a highway make for better vegetation and <laughs> plant life because obviously they have a better food system because that's the way God designed very intelligently, in my opinion, um, the plant life to thrive is is based on emissions. And so it destroys their whole global warming theory and climate change theory. So they don't like it. So they ripped his tenure from him. Um, but science. It's all science. Exactly. We see we see this over and over again with with people being intimidated for being on our side of things. It takes a lot of courage. And I think that that's something that um, that, you know, we need to you know, remember as we sort of march down this road, it takes a lot of courage. I, I know that there have been days where you woken up and wished that you could be a leftist. I do just about every day. Not only do I think it's such a much easier walk through life and literally one of a fantasy. <laughs> Things like global warming <laughs> could be your number one issue when it's actually just a, a, a mental construct theory at best. Um, it seems to have been unproven over over and over again, disproven over and over again. Um, but also because my, my own father is, um, yes. my only living, my only living, uh, you know, nuclear relative and, um, he's a leftist activist and I, my whole life wanted to please my dad, just like every daughter, but especially every only child daughter. Right. And, um, I've always wished that I could believe what he believes. I simply cannot. And, so it, it does leave those of us who are, are thinking individuals with, a, you know, a really difficult road to hoe 
if you're going to be an activist. It'd be so much easier to either not be an activist at all or to be a leftist. You're exactly right. And, and that emotional part of it, while it does matter to me, um, I have to do what my brain says. I have to go through reason and deduction and logic and the things that, that my brain says are true. And unless I could lie to myself, I just can't be a liberal. I was really amazed at how authentic and honest and revealing you were in your book about your relationship with your dad. And I want to hold that topic till a little bit later in our conversation. I want to pick up on something else you said right now. You talked about how it takes courage to be a conservative now. I think particularly as a woman and particularly as an educated woman, a PhD, and you talk in your book about how you were involved in Republican slash conservative politics. But at some point, your husband said uh, you need to make sure that if you put yourself behind Trump or any candidate, he didn't say Trump, but if you put yourself behind a candidate, you better make sure that he wins. Yeah. And when you decided to throw in with Donald Trump, you would go to these conservative women's groups, conservative Jewish groups, and a hush would fall over the crowd. And you, even in what would be safe spaces for conservatives, to borrow a phrase from the left, uh -huh. you suffered for your embrace of Donald Trump's candidacy. So I would like to know, how did you become friends with President Trump? And what did you see in him, uh, despite his harsh language sometimes and you you talk about his tweets in your book in a very funny way how were you able to become friends with him and to support his candidacy and you turned out to be right he won <laughs> well i think it's really important to note gail that i was not friends with him i did not know him during the campaign he's the only candidate i did not know he's the only candidate i had never interviewed he's the only candidate whose family i didn't know i've been you know very engaged in uh, conservative politics for a long long time and as such i've gotten to know most of the people that were initially on that on that uh, primary ticket and uh, it, it so it was hard for me to support this president but for me again it goes back to the psychology of the matter i always look for motives and i could understand why everyone there was running it was a great step forward for every one of them i could understand why all of them wanted to be president i could understand why all of them wanted the power or wanted the money or wanted the accomplishment inside the bubble that they've subsisted in in most cases for decades that all made perfect sense to me i could not understand why a man who had the world quite literally by the tail who could be in any one of his beautiful properties, could be golfing, could be enjoying his golden years with his amazing family that he loves, his children he's crazy about, his incredibly beautiful wife. He could be enjoying them, watching Baron grow, watching his grandchildren grow. And instead of that, he was gonna risk it all, bend a lot of it, lose all sorts of credibility with everyone who disagreed with him, and put himself in the middle of what is essentially a war on him. And I could not understand why he would do that unless it was for love of country. Nobody does anything like that for selfish reasons. There was just no selfish reason for him to do it. it there was no self gain that I could see other than the satisfaction of knowing he did best by his family and his country and his legacy. And, and, and when I figured that out, I thought, okay, you know, this is the right reason for him to run and I have to respect that. So that was where I jumped on board. I didn't know him until well after he was elected. Um, and I met him a few different times. And then he um, immediately recognized me from my work on television. Never, ever. He just, he chooses people and he picks them and he brings them into his circle. And he is so gracious and loving and warm and, and gives so much more than you can give him. And it, it's an amazing thing to know a man as busy and as powerful as President Trump, and yet when you're with him, you're the only person in the room, and you really truly feel like somebody that has been his friend his whole entire life. And that's who he is. And so I'm super proud to be his friend. A lot of media will you know, say, oh, well, you're his friend. Well, I wanna say that I was never his friend during that campaign. I worked for him because I thought his motives were pure and because I knew he could win, um, and I knew he would win. 
And those are the reasons I stayed on board with him. And so my friendship with him has developed subsequent to that. That is a great distinction. I would like to start by saying that I agree with you that a huge part of President Trump's or candidate Donald Trump's appeal was that he was not reliant on special interests. He funded so much of the campaign by himself. He, uh, you know, was able to use his resources and, and invest them. And and if I remember correctly, he's not even taking a salary right now, isn't That's he? That's correct. Donating it to veterans' causes, or I don't remember the exact details, but there's not much reporting of that. Uh, but I am going to play devil's advocate here. This is right in D.C. There are tremendous privileges that come with being president that Michael Duffy has written about in the President's Club when these men leave office, and they've only been men so far, when they leave office, it is a hard adjustment because to be the leader of the free world, to have the motorcades, to have the attention of the entire world, that is a heady thing. Um, and so to play devil's advocate, uh, you, you have that, the, the level of power, the ability to affect change, number one. Number two, the attention of the world. Now, your response probably be, would be that it's negative, and I understand that. Uh, and then the third is the financial piece. I mean, you and I both agree that the Clintons were a crime family, essentially, um, and they used the benefits of public office to enrich themselves, to enrich their family, to enrich their friends. And while the law doesn't seem to hold them accountable. Uh, certainly that had to be part of why she was not elected. But you see, even from, I would say, somewhat friendly media outlets like Forbes, you see articles saying, well, President Trump try is trying to use the presidency to enrich himself and his family. He's just bad at it and he's not doing a good job. So Forbes acknowledges that that Donald Trump and his family they have lost money since he has been president but they they make the allegation that it's not for lack of trying which i disagree with but i'm curious what your response to those types of criticisms of president trump to your rationale for supporting him as as a candidate well let me be clear i supported him as a candidate because i knew that he could have no real conflict of interest in terms of lobbyists that I've seen. Uh, I knew that right. somebody like, for example, a Ted Cruz, who I was initially attracted to before the president got into the race, yes. um, and Marco Rubio and others, I knew yes. that by the time they could actually make it through the primary, just the way the system works, the way that political cookie crumbles, they would be owned by certain lobbyists. And they would, they would have, for the entire duration of their presidency, they would have... Um, you know, they would be bound by the commitments they'd made for the money that they had to have to win the primary and then to ultimately win the general. So I was very concerned about that, just knowing the inside of politics. As I mentioned in Mad Politics, my book, um, my husband, you know, was a uh, state senator. I knew that the sort of corruption I saw on the state level only gets worse as you yes. look into the federal level. And so I, I knew what I was watching there, and I knew that the president was the only one who had any possibility of not being corrupted by the process. Um, but I, I would submit that, although you know there is a lot of attention, and you even pegged it negative attention, um, the rest of those things the president pretty much had already, only it was all in good ways. He had everybody wanting him at every party all over the country, all over the world. He had international fame and acclaim um, and, and pretty much was above criticism. I mean, who's going to criticize the billionaire that they're hoping will come to their next party or their next <laughs> fundraiser? You know, he had all of that. So he really didn't have a lot to gain in terms of uh, attention and acknowledgement, um, you know, <clears throat> feeling loved by people. At this point, though, I would say... Um, what we've watched this president and his family endure have been nothing short of pure hell. And I, I, I've never, we've never ever in political experience in, in America seen such harsh treatment of a person and his family simply for wanting to serve their country. And it's been amazing to me to watch how this president has compartmentalized the criticism and been able to deal with it so well. And not just him. His family deals with it very well, as I would say also. But they didn't have to have this. Again, 
they were going to have all the money that they have, which is really more money than most of us would even know how to spend in a lifetime. <laughs> um, they were going to enjoy their wineries and their golf clubs and their beautiful mansions literally all over the world. And um, they never had to worry about a thing other than if they wanted to show up for work on Monday or if they did it. And now they have to worry about a lot of things. The motorcades might sound fun. I've traveled in the motorcade with the family. I can tell you it's a lot of security. Um, it's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, one time in particular, I won't say where I was or which family member I was with, but I was with a family member in a town. And we accidentally walked in one door of a particular building. And then we were having fun. We were kind of playing in this one particular store. And we accidentally walked out of another door. And right. about Easy to stores, do. About, yeah, exactly. And about two stores later, we realized we had completely <laughs> ditched this <laughs> secret service and that they probably had no idea. And all you of know, a sudden, this I, I'm seized with panic realizing Oh my gosh, you just, you, you can't live a normal life. You can't do, you can't do the most normal of things, having fun with your friends. There's none of that. There's always, always security detail trailing close behind. And there are times where you just want to take a walk alone with your husband on a beach, or there are times where you just want to yes. go for a run, you know, and they don't have any of that anymore. Now, I don't think it bothers the president that much because I think he always had some degree of security just because right. of who he was and how much money he had. But for, for him to have to watch his family have to go through all of this and the consistent death threats, you know, I, I, I've won, many times wanted to hand the president something one on one. And I have, if, you know, if I happen to be in exactly the right place, but even here at the club, you can't hand him here in, uh, you know, at the Mar-a-Lago club with him. I can't just hand the president a thank you note. Wow. Or, you know, or a letter from a veteran that the veteran may have asked me. Wow. I can't do that. The Secret Service will descend on me. And, or like and, anthrax concerns or something like touching something that might be a, a contaminant. Probably all of the above. I just know uh -huh. that, you know, his life is very different from how it could be. And he has sacrificed a lot to be the president for us. And um, and so has his family. And, and like I said, for him, I think the part about him having the inconveniences is not hard, but as a family member of, of a, someone who has held political office, I can tell you, knowing that his children and grandchildren have to go through these sorts of security measures, that's hard. That is hard. Right. You talked about when your husband was serving as a state representative in Missouri, you were pregnant and on bed rest and your young daughters were having to make food and make sure you were okay and take care of you, which is just the sweetest image ever. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, just even at the state level, he, your husband had to be at the Capitol in order to make sure that he met with the governor about bills that were very important to be passed. And the families, they do pay a very heavy price. They, there are right. some benefits, uh, but certainly, you know, Donald Trump, for example, Mac Miller did the song about Donald Trump long before he was a, a presidential candidate. And it seemed like everybody, like you said, wanted to get their picture taken with Donald Trump. Um, and people who never thought he was a racist before he b came, came as a Republican candidate suddenly were screaming loudest from the rooftops uh, what you know, uh, the worst insults they could possibly make against another human being. And, and you reference this in your book. You talk about how um, when he descended the golden elevator at Trump Tower, he made comments. And I have gone on NPR and, and said that the comments are completely taken out of, con out of context by the press about Mexicans and um, who Mexico was sending to us. And you make that point in the book, too. I, I mean, do you psychologically, why do you think the press like, for example, they have these articles that say the president has lied 6,000 times. Psychologically, why do the press think that that is an effective strategy against him when, first, they never do that to Democrats or liberals, liberal Republicans, but why do they think that that is a successful tactic against him? Because I would think when you get to 6,000 things that are misspoken, like maybe normal people would understand that that's obviously an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even heard that statistic. That's outlandish. Um, <clears throat> if the president is, is anything, it might be too honest. Um, I, if I were to make a criticism of him, I often say, <laughs> I think he might be a little too honest sometimes, and I think he might be a little too loyal sometimes. 
Um, I've seen both of those things. And I think that those are more accurate criticisms of this president, if I'm trying to be in my rational mind, um, than saying that he's dishonest. I mean, everyone says, oh, the president shouldn't tweet. Well, why, why do they not want the president to tweet? They don't want the president tweeting because he relates to the American people and he says things that are so honest that sometimes they come off as not politically correctly arranged, politically correctly arranged. I don't know if that's a word, but uh, you know, they're, they're not arranged the way that the consultants would have someone <laughs> arrange them, right? And so, so that's, the, that's the whole criticism of him. You can't have it both ways. Either he is too brash and honest or he's a liar. Those two things don't really work very well together. Right. So the, the press is going to have to make up their minds as to which uh, criticism they're going to give. But yeah, my experience with him is that he is loyal. He's incredibly loyal, sometimes to a fault. We saw that with Omarosa. I'm not sure she ever deserved the amount of loyalty that the president Uh, gave her, but we did see uh, that. We've seen it in other examples where he's kept people for too long or he's been too gracious to people um, just because he knows them and hoped and believed the best in them. The president has a fascinating birth order. And I think that's something that is not taken into account hardly ever except in my book um and that he is um the he's like has a double birth order it's called but he's kind of the baby but he's right. also the oldest because of the spread in years over his uh it, between he and his next oldest sibling and then the same thing in his next youngest sibling and so those two things made him have this incredible confidence like all babies of all families do, where they think everybody just loves them and they think the best of people all the time. And they they just don't even hardly stop to realize they're critics because they feel so loved because they were so loved as the baby of the family, right? Right. That, but he also has this very unusual quality. And I have a son that has the same exact quality. Um, and, uh, and that is being the oldest while he's the youngest. In my son's particular instance, my youngest son has Down syndrome, actually my second oldest son. So, but it puts my son in the position of being almost parental with his, even though he's the baby, puts him in a position right. of being almost parental with his, um, his brother that we decided to adopt who happens to have Down syndrome. So as the youngest brother and the brother of a child who has special needs, my son also has this unbreakable confidence and strong leadership ability. Those two things don't usually come together. Usually if you get a strong leadership ability, you've got an oldest child, right? That's why so many presidents are oldest children. Very rare for a youngest child to be president, but if they are, it's that gregariousness and everybody loves me assumption that makes them a a good president or a good leader. And so our president happens to have both of those qualities, which is an amazing dynamic for such a time as this, I always say, Gail, because he's got to be able to use the criticism to fuel him to continue to succeed. And that's precisely what this president does with the uh, negative that comes out of the press. Right. And I found this article very quickly. It's Washington Post. President Trump has made more than 5,000 false or misleading claims. Really? (laughs) 5,000? I mean, I just, it's just astonishing to me that they think that 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 is an effective attack against him. And then, you know, on the tweets, uh, there was a tweet about Rex Tillerson, I think over the weekend, maybe it was Friday, and that's gotten a lot of blowback. Um, uh, You are a Christian, and I think there have been a bunch of op-eds over the weekend talking about how uh, evangelicals are not going to support President Trump anymore because of tweets like that against Rex Tillerson. What do you think the psychology of that is? Well, you know, this goes back to me thinking that the president sometimes just goes ahead and says exactly what he thinks. And this is a an indicator of um, guttural honesty, mistaken or not. It's still I don't know how else you interpret that. You know, most presidents wait for their consultants to pass through all of their comments before any statements are given to the press and so on and so forth. Not this president. He thinks something and he's going to say it. And so, um, you know, how he again, they're going to have to make up their mind whether they're going to call him too honest or not honest enough because you really can't have it both ways. And every time they criticize him on something like this, I, I see this exact same problem with their criticism of him that, you know, did he did he run the traps on this? Did he send this past John Kelly and every single advisor he has and all the (laughs) high paid consultants? Or did he not? not. Because you just can't have it both ways. Yeah. 
Uh, what did you think of George H.W. Bush's funeral last week? Did you follow the commentary about George Herbert Walker Bush? I mean, there was a lot of discussion about President Bush pro and con. Well, I think that you have to realize that God raises up presidents for the time that he raises them up for. And there's just simply no way that H.W. could have been elected president in this particular time when we are truly watching the erosion and the attack on what is essentially our entire Bill of Rights and Constitution. Um, there have never been this sort of unprecedented attacks on our free speech rights and on our um, you know, Second Amendment rights. And uh, the list goes on that there are today. Only a counterpuncher like the president we have today could possibly lead us through such uh, disarray. And, 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 when, and when the conversation is literally where the media is opposing civil discourse, when we are literally in a place and time where the media itself opposes civil discourse because it doesn't concur with their clickbait that they need to make money these days because of the way that media has changed. Um, it, it really is, and I wrote a lot about this in my book, Mad Politics, as you know, Gail, because I believe yes. clickbait media is to blame for where we are right now. I, I'm not putting it on any one particular entity or anything. I think it's just where we found ourselves. Uh, media has a lot of competition because they weren't doing their job very well. So all of a sudden, everybody's competing for eyeballs and ears, and that means they're going to write salacious headlines, and civil discourse is their worst enemy. Because as long as we're having a civil conversation, Gail, they're not going to be selling newspapers and right. they're not going to be getting eyeballs on their uh, national news networks that before there were only three of. And now there are literally thousands of. So, so what do they do with that? They have to write the craziest, most spectacular, most ridiculous headline and then try to get you to believe it. Like the president has lied 5,000 times. That's utterly ridiculous. They do not document that. That's an obvious lie on its face. Even if it were true, the chances of them actually documenting 5,000 lies is, is utterly absurd. And yet they're going to go ahead and write those sorts of headlines because they are so very desperate for the clicks. And so that's precisely where we find ourselves. But civil discourse is their greatest threat. You and I having a conversation, especially if we disagree is the greatest threat of all right now to all subsisting media. And so that's the reason why we needed a counterpuncher. We needed somebody that would formulate his own, uh, you know, identity in social media. We needed somebody that would um, not lay down, not, you know, you, you remember when this president came down that escalator that day, yes. no one was even discussing illegal immigration. It was a non topic. Remember, right. Republican candidates like Rubio, like Cruz, who should have been the first as as le as families from legal legally immigrated uh, status, yep. they, they should have been the first in line saying, hey, no, wait your turn. We waited our turn. Our families waited their turns. Can, you know, just please wait your turn. And I'm going to stand for that as president. It was it was unspeakable in that moment. Right. This president is fearless. We have never seen a president like this in, in modern in the modern era. And um, and so he, he really is just such a special personality for exactly this time. And that's what I tried to point to in Mad Politics. And then to give people sort of the reassurance, too, that that he's the right person for this time. And I believe he will go down in history as the best president ever in our history, because I don't think anyone has ever taken us from truly the brink of full disaster and, and um, the uh, annihilation of our own country from within like this president has the opportunity to do, and I believe he will. That's such a great point. People forget that Romney did not as well as President Trump among Hispanics and the African-American community. And after Romney left, uh, lost, there was a autopsy commissioned by the Republican National Committee. And out of that, they said that uh, the, the Republicans needed to be laxer on immigration, move towards uh, a more liberal position on immigration. And like you're saying, President or candidate Trump was the only one talking about that, even among people who should have been talking about it. Back to George Bush, George H.W. Bush. Oh, yeah. In, sorry. In, I think I got totally away from that. <laughs> that's okay. I'll, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. In part, a lot of the coverage focused on his character 
and his personal style, that he was kind and gentle. He was a kind and gentle man. And how do you think that relates to our current political climate? Why is the me- Why are the media so big on pushing this narrative of former President Bush as being kind and gentle? Well, they weren't when he was president, right? Right. <laughs> and, um, and so it's very convenient now that they suddenly have this love affair with the Bush family because they've never treated the president's Bush um, you know, well. They certainly weren't as mean to them as they have been to this president, but it was a different time. Um, and, and I think that they used the death of this president. Um, I believe they weaponized his death, in fact, which is perhaps one of the cruelest, most inhumane things you could do um, to try to turn it as a, as a weapon against the current President Trump. And, I, you know, I don't think it works. They can sit back and talk about civil discourse all they want and the civility of uh, President H.W., um, but they were not civil to him when he was president. I think that they long for, and I think you really pointed this out in, in our conversation, we had just our short conversation prior to this interview, um, they, they celebrate a sort of a weakness because they long for a weaker president that they could manipulate and that they could threaten or, or say the word racist. And then the moment right. the word racist is uttered, uttered, they scramble to the corners like little cockroaches and scared to death, hiding in the dark crevices of the political establishment. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that this president has never done that. He kind of goes and bursts out and puffs <laughs> up his chest and puts on his cape and says, you know, you're not going to call me a racist. I'm not right. a racist or whatever. And of course, they long for a day when they had a president that they could get to to crawl back into the echelons of the elite. But uh, that's not who this president is. He doesn't need the elite. He doesn't need the establishment. He doesn't need the consultants. He doesn't need the lobbyists. And that is a very confusing thing for those of us who, for those of them rather, who have only ever functioned within that apparatus. I think it's hilarious to watch sometimes. And, and that's the thing I did, you know, the, the subtitle of my book is Keeping Your Sanity in a World Gone Crazy. You really can, if you can just apply humor a little, a little tip yes. of humor over the top of watching some of this go on. It really is not as enraging and becomes quite, quite comical. Right. I took a stand-up comedy class this fall because I thought, you know, it's good to to inject a little comedy into political discussions, right? I mean, exactly. it's, uh, you need to keep things light. We are so blessed and we have so many responsibilities, but it, it's very important to keep an optimistic, kind of a humorous attitude towards some of this stuff. Speaking of that, you attended, I, and I believe spoke at a conference this weekend in DC, I think it's called the American Priorities Conference, and there was a hit piece, surprise, surprise, in Politico, uh, detailing how this was not a good conference. And I'm curious, not on the specifics of the conference, but whether you think it's better to have more speech or if the media and the the people in the Democratic Party who want to shut down speech from college campuses to what people say on Twitter to what people say, you know, just in their conversations with their neighbors or uh, any kind of interactions between humans. Is that something that is driving us all crazy because we, um, you know, you going to this conference and speaking at it, you, you don't necessarily agree with everything anyone says at this conference or they've said in Twitter 10 years ago. If we have that kind of standard of purity of association and speech, isn't that part of what is driving our society absolutely batty? Oh, definitely. We should just let the media define us and never, ever really stand up for what we believe. And and by the way, none of us should ever be given an opportunity to politically evolve. We should all come into yeah. politics exactly where we are and have it held against us absolutely forever, no matter what, and not given a chance to change or grow based on, I don't know, civil discord, dialogue, and right. those things. And then we should just let the media define us and go ahead and tear down our country. No, is this really the point they're making? I mean, it's, it's ironic to me, Gail, that this media, who is wholly dependent on our exclusive rights as Americans to to have our First Amendment. I mean, Amen. there's no one more dependent on our First Amendment right 
stand the media. And yet the so-called media is fighting the First Amendment at every single turn. And the irony is just it's delicious and comical if you think about it, because because they, they literally are fighting to chop their own heads off. And you really it's I mean, I know that, you know, even biblical uh, truth reveals you if you read even going back to the whole Torah, you read about whole groups of people fighting for things that ultimately were their own demise. And that's precisely <laughs> what we're watching here. And yet it's like they're too they're too ignorant to even recognize the error of their own ways. I, I don't know. I don't know what they think they're going to do once they accomplish their outcome of making it so that they can't exist anymore. Because if they're if the First Amendment is abolished, let's consider that for a moment, which is really what they're saying should happen. Right. Um, who do they think is going right now is the Trump era. If, if Politico goes away and all the other leftist regressive outlets go away, what what do who do they think the president is going to put up as the state news? Right. I mean, right. <laughs> thank God our president is, is has never even considered he, he's he, he would be repulsed at the idea of a confined or limited uh, media. He wouldn't do that. But thank God for him standing up for the rights of those who are too ignorant to even catch on to the fact that they would be the first losers in all of that. It, it's the most ridiculous thing. It's like the people that advocate for the abolition of our Second Amendment. Yes. In, in almost every instance, it is the very people advocating for the abolition of our Second Amendment that would be the first to be killed. <laughs> and so I, I've never understood this. I, I, it's just astonishing to me. And I just look for the humor in it for right now because I don't know what else to do but laugh that people can literally be that devoid of common sense. Right. And you discuss that a little bit in your book, talking about the Second Amendment in the context of bullying that you experienced. You had a rock, a rock thrown at your head by oh, yeah. another student. And so you and I have very strong principled opinions on why the Second Amendment is is vital and particularly important to women because it changes the balance of power in a situation where a woman is generally at a disadvantage. And I found that that part of your book to be really interesting because I think most people uh, who have these strong opinions about this have some sort of experience where they have had personal experience of this. And like you said, a lot of the people who argue against it would be the first who were harmed. Um, and, and when you think about women living in dangerous neighborhoods, too, that they are at the mercy of those who, uh, you know, I, I keep citing this statistic. And I, I think people don't really understand it or, or they don't they understand it, but they're not aware of it. But over 90 percent of violent crime in the United States occurs without a firearm. So that means over 90% of the times that someone is is a victim of violent crime, the attacker does not have a firearm. So I, I found that very interesting in your book. And I hope people, you know, buy your book and read that part, because I think it explains the the passion that you have for the Second Amendment. I think you just said that so well. It, I always have said I'm a five foot two petite female. <laughs> my gun is my equalizer. I said that when I was on a reality show, um, I, it, it is absolutely true. And the more they try to portray me as some sort of crazy person for wanting to have a gun, the more I know I actually need my gun. Right. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating to me that every single time there is a, for example, a mass shooting or something, often without any facts to back themselves up, they go fight again for more gun control when gun yes. control is often precisely what causes it. Most crimes that are mass shootings are committed in what we call gun-free zones, which is basically a welcome mat for a criminal to take his gun in and know good and well, there will be no guns there to protect anyone. So he's going to get away with it at least for a period of time. And so, uh, you know, if you really looked at data and you, and you took the emotion out of every one of these instances, we could prevent a mass amount of shootings, but we are, we are, we instead, what we do is we react emotionally, we react in the moment. And, um, and, and often that means there are going to be more mass shootings because there are fewer guns. And, um, and that's really where, that's really where the reality lies. And so until people are willing to look at facts instead of feelings, 
uh, we're going to be stuck in some of these same circular patterns. And um, it's sad because it's going to, there's going to be a human cost in that. Yes. And this is the final topic that I would like to speak with you about for today. We hit so many highlights. Uh, so we're going to let President Trump keep his Twitter account. We're going to not give in to the media's attempts to define our public discourse. And then we touched earlier about your relationship with your dad and how you want to be a daddy's little girl, like most girls want to be, aspire to that, and how difficult it was growing up with a father who was very liberal to the point where he had a bumper sticker talking about population control on his car. Um, And I almost dropped the book when (laughs) I read this part about how your dad, when you were young, told you that he wished it's just astonishing for me to say this. He wished he had been aborted, that yeah. he had not come into the world. Yeah. And you um, were an only child. Your parents were divorced. You attended a Catholic school. And um, as a person who who joined the Catholic Church as an adult, I was so upset to to read about how um, unkind the nun was to you and your Catholic elementary school when you said that your parents had not been married in the Catholic Church. She called you a bastard. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I I don't know how you can even remain a Christian anymore (laughs) with that kind of, you know, it's kind of like Gandhi said, I love Jesus. I don't like his followers. Yeah. Um, But I think this all kind of ties back into the abortion issue. Uh, You worked at a camp with Down syndrome kids and you realized that most of these down syndrome kids were now or babies were now being aborted because of of uh, genetic information that were given to mothers and this just broke my heart you would write letters to planned parenthood clinics trying to get them to let moms who had down syndrome babies know that you and your husband stood ready to adopt one and you came to understand that planned parenthood Clinics were not in the adoption business. They were in the abortion business. Uh, so I, I, you have five children now, one of whom um, you adopted. You drove to Florida to pick up from the hospital. He wasn't supposed to live. I'd like you to tell a little bit about that story of how God kind of changed what had been heartbreak for you into a new way of, of giving you that, that um, beautiful family. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's it's probably the most um, prevalent thought in my mind every day when I when I consider my faith and I consider um, the reality of it. Maybe aside from my recent trip to Israel, which made my faith all the more profound as well. But uh, you know, there was a point where I just lost twin babies. Long story, but it all resulted in amazing miracles and um, twin baby boys. And my friend said to me, "Don't worry." God will restore what the locusts have eaten away. And I remember being absolutely enraged that my best friend from high school would say that to me. Um, How could she be so insensitive as to say that God would restore twin boys? But he did. And it was amazing how he did it. It was the most outlandish roundabout way. But ultimately, (laughs) I did end up with one baby that was not supposed to survive. That was uh, my own natural uh, childbirth. And, And then my other child, Samuel, who was born to me through the miracle of adoption. And his birth mother and I, to this day, are extremely close. I keep her identity very well hidden. But she's a close friend of mine at this point. And um, she, you know, she doesn't have any desire to be public, but she definitely wants me to tell her story because she tried to abort him many times. Oh. And, um, and God just put his hand up in ways that were absolutely beyond miracles. And for the first year of his life, we exchanged letters. I didn't really, wasn't comfortable with her knowing like where we lived and things like that. And then ultimately, um, it, none of that mattered. It all melted away. And all I wanted was just to know this woman that had given my son life. And today he's a very happy, very healthy, very, uh, funny. Uh, he is, he's, I always say the belly laugh of our family. Everybody who meets him loves him. Anyone who thinks that a child with Down syndrome will not enrich and, 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 and give a depth and a breadth to their life that they can't possibly understand ahead of time, um, it's it just you're, you're so missing it. 
And, and I'm so sad for that. And I am sad that so many of them are aborted today. I literally had to get the only way I got my son was because he was actually from a, from a foreign country and, and parents were here on a green card. And that's the only way I ended up with him. And she was working multiple jobs. She was a recent green card recipient. And so she was here working multiple jobs and had no idea how she was going to take care of this special needs child. Um. And so that's how I got him. And uh, it's a miracle. It really is. And I would love people to read that story in my book because uh, to me, it, it just tells so much about the hand of God in our world and in our lives very, very personally. And so I uh, thank you for bringing that up. That's my one of my faves. Mine too. And, and there is a great example of, you know, there are many people who support abortion will say, well, if you really believed it, why wouldn't you go adopt someone? And this story is just so, so inspiring. And I think the discussion in the book about your relationship with your dad and how you had to go follow truth, even if it cost you his approval. I think that's a great lesson for all children and all adults who who need to understand that, um, you know, truth costs something. It's costly, but you can have the benefits of it as well. Uh, Dr. Genia, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to learn more about you, what is your handle on Twitter and where can they follow you? Yeah, it's Real Dr. Gina pretty much everywhere. And uh, that's how they can follow me and find me. My book is available on Amazon. And uh, I'd love also if your listeners would be willing to rate it because the left did a concerted effort to try to keep me off of the best-selling list and bring my rating down. And they ended up taking my Amazon listing down for a couple of days because of oh. the left's very organized attempt to destroy my book. Terrible. Um, yeah. But the president tweeted about it. And he yes, said, I saw um, that. he's done it a couple of times. And he said to buy a copy. It makes a great Christmas gift. It's, it's more a story than a political uh, book. And so I hope that people will get their copy of Mad Politics. It is a great Christmas gift, and I will be giving it out this year, too. Thank you so much. This is Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel and support this show on Patreon. This is Right in D.C. You're Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.